we got that. All right. Uh, growing up in Minnesota, we had a, like whenever the snow started to melt, we had a, a dirt driveway at the house that I grew up in. So like if you if you've ever had like snow with dirt, like it's not a good combination. And so like we'd get like all of these like big kind of like pothole sorts of things in the dirt during leading up to the winter and then the snow would come and like fill all that in. And when the snow started to melt, my dad would always go out with me and we'd like cut little divots in the little pools of water and make like a little river that would allow it to like drain into the ditch. And there was something very just like kind of relaxing about like the 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 moving water and uh when I got a little older, being in uh, Minnesota, we went to the Boundary Waters, which if you've never looked up pictures of the Boundary Waters, it's one of the most beautiful, like natural places you could ever see in the world. It's like a, a string of like islands with like uh, uh, little lakes and stuff like that. You like have to portage from one to another and everything like that. It's just like, but there's like no technology there at all. So it's just like pure beauty. And there's something always like really relaxing about being around like the streams of water and stuff like this. And in the Bible, at three strategic places, you've got this imagery of like this river that gives life. I'll go ahead and read the text and then we'll set up the context for what we're looking at. But look at Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Enelglaim. It will be a place for the surrounding of nets, spreading of nets. Its fish will be of, of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food, their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit every month because the water from, for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, as we read that, is this a passage that you've ever like decided to look at and go, you know what? I really want to understand what my purpose is as a Christian. So what better place to go than Ezekiel 47 with this river thing? You guys ever done that? Uh, that's... 
<laughs> no, what was that? Not recently. Not recently, okay. Um, well, so we've more or less sort of like plucked this passage just out of Ezekiel. What in the world is the context of this passage? We know from Ezekiel 1 verse 1 that Ezekiel says, As I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. All right, so here's Ezekiel and he's writing from exile, from being in exile. Ezekiel was taken in one of the Babylonian besiegements of the nation of Israel, of Jerusalem. He was taken, I believe, in the, in the second besiegement. Uh, Daniel, by the way, would have taken, been taken in the first one. So, but here Ezekiel is in exile. He's been ripped away from his homeland, where the temple is. And he sees visions of God by the Kibar Canal. Now, if you were look at, looking at a map and you knew the geography of Babylon... The Kibar Canal would have been like one of the main exit entry places for the soldiers of Babylon. So whenever Ezekiel is by the Kibar Canal and he can see the Babylonian soldiers leaving, he knows where they're going. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. And so you can imagine that this would be a time where the morale of the nation would have been extremely low. And Ezekiel is kind of functioning as like this prophetic news anchor, like He's prophesying, he's getting these visions from God, and then he goes and tells people, his own people that are in exile, hey, like, I know we're all away from Jerusalem right now, but this is what God just showed me in a vision is going to happen to our nation. So what's the message of Ezekiel? Uh, the first 32 chapters are judgment. So can you imagine Ezekiel, like, whenever you watch football games and the ref, like, goes to the black box and, like, he makes the decision on whether the play, was, the pass was a complete or incomplete or whatever. Like, here's Ezekiel, he's, like, getting his visions... And then he goes to God, the, the people of God, and he says, well, sorry, guys, but it's judgment, 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 judgment for 32 chapters. Do you think Ezekiel would have been a very popular preacher? I don't imagine that the people would have really liked every time he had something to say. It was more bad news. It's interesting in Leviticus 18.28, God says that if you guys keep sinning when you go into the promised land, that I will vomit you out. When you make it unclean, don't you like the way that God describes things? Like, couldn't have God have just said, like, I'm going to take you out of the promised land. I'm going to vomit you out of the promised land. So Ezekiel 1 through 32 is why the nation of Israel was vomited out of the land. But beginning in Ezekiel 33 through the rest of the book, you've got all these beautiful pictures of restoration. Have you ever? So Ezekiel's a very balanced preacher. Have you ever like heard some preachers where it's like always just railing on the people and then other preachers where it's always like grace and love. Ezekiel is very balanced. Like there's judgment, but there's also love and restoration. And so in Ezekiel in chapters like 33 to 48, one of the things that he talks about is this restored temple. That this place where God dwells and this place where you guys worshiped God, it was decimated in the first section. But in the second section of Ezekiel, you get this grand, huge vision of this temple. So after chapter 46 of Ezekiel, we've kind of like had the outlines of the, of the temple. Now in Ezekiel 47, we have Ezekiel stepping outside of the, te the temple and looking at everything that he just prophesied about. Now... We'll imagine this in just a moment, but there's different ways that you can summarize the Bible. Uh, you can you can look at being children of Abraham. You can look at like all kinds of like there's at least 20 some themes that run through the whole Bible beginning in Genesis. One of the themes that is not as obvious is this theme of rivers. Uh, have you guys ever thought about like a oh, river, river of life? That's a big theme in the Bible. Uh, it's not as obvious as some of the other themes. 
But in Genesis chapter two, verses nine and 10, I'll go ahead and just read this. It says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. So here's a river in the garden of Eden. And uh, do you realize that most rivers, they have like tributary streams that add to the river. Most rivers don't split and become four. Normally it's four becomes one. But this one in the Garden of Eden is one becomes four. Now why, so there's a very different kind of river, kind of like this one in Ezekiel is. But what was the purpose of these rivers in Genesis chapter two? Do you remember the commission to Adam and Eve? Go and be fruitful and multiply. Adam's job was to cultivate the garden, which means that God's plan for the world from a physical perspective was, first of all, that the whole world would become like the Garden of Eden. And so the rivers would have been the thing that kind of nourished the world in order to make the world into this Garden of Eden sort of place. And of course, as sin entered the world, that river was kind of stopped and cut short and everything like that. And it didn't really fulfill its purpose anymore. But this is all a picture of what God always wanted to have happen spiritually. In Revelation 22, one of the ways that the Bible ends is in the new heavens and the new earth. You've got this river that flows and it brings forth all of this fruit. And that's a picture of what Jesus is doing in the new heavens and the new earth with the church, that our mission is to go out and help people understand what, what God has done for them with, as we tell them about this river of life and everything like that. We'll talk more about the purpose of that in just a second. But this is like three times in the Bible, at the beginning, kind of in the middle in Ezekiel, and then at the end, you've got this river of life. If you look at this text in verse 6, as Ezekiel is seeing all of these things take place, this angel asks Ezekiel this question, son of man, have you seen this? Now, here's the question. Have you seen this before in the Bible? Have you seen the imagery? Have you ever realized that 70% of the Bible is told in story or images or visions? God has given us a picture book. Like he, he wants people to imagine the things that the Bible teaches. So try to imagine what this would have been like. So here's Ezekiel. And he's standing, like, let's just use this door for our imagination's purposes. He's standing by this door. Let's say this is the entrance to the most holy place. And right now we're in the holy place, all right? So, like, there's the most holy place. Uh, and, like, he sees, oh, no, sorry, this would be the, the holy place. I got that wrong. He'd be in the outer court, though. So, like, he sees this water flowing out of the temple to, to the east. It's going east. Now, in the Bible, what does the direction east represent? Every time Cain sins, he goes east. Adam and Eve are evicted from the garden and they have to go east. East is like the pits. East is the place you don't want to go. And, uh, and so they go out that direction. And so Ezekiel sees this stream flowing from the same place. And so Ezekiel's going to exit by the north gate. So if this would be the east gate over here, he exits by the north gate. And then he goes around outside the temple. And imagine that that's the, the new door over there. And he sees the stream still flowing under the threshold. So this little stream that started there is trickling out. And it's actually going outside the temple complex now. And he's told by the angel to go basically 1,500 feet. That's what the measurement would amount to. So basically like a third of a mile or so. And so Ezekiel goes out a third of a mile. 
and this little trickle has now like gotten up to his ankles. Have you ever sloshed around in ankle deep water? You can hear the sound of it and everything like that. So now, like he's maybe walking a little bit slower now, but he can still walk decently fine. If you were Ezekiel and you saw that, uh, what would you think about that? Like in a dry, arid area, a little trickle would immediately sink into the dirt because the dirt needs that stuff. But he goes out a third of a mile and he's sloshing around. And then the angel says, uh, how about you go another thousand cubits? And so he goes another thousand cubits and it becomes knee deep. And at this point, and by at no point in this vision, are there tributary streams? Like it's just this little trickle that has become knee deep now. And you can imagine Ezekiel like looking around like this is the strangest thing ever. And then this angel says, all right, go another thousand cubits. And then he goes so far out that he's almost like at a mile now and it's waist deep. Waist deep. Like he, he's moving a lot slower now. And you can imagine him like looking back like a mile towards the temple and going, why? How in the world did this ever happen? For the fourth time, the angel says, go again. And he goes out another thousand cubits and it becomes so deep that he can't even cross it anymore. He has to get out onto the bank of the river and he starts looking around and he got this vision where he says, have you seen this? Can you imagine Ezekiel one and one third mile away looking out at this giant temple that he just talked about? Well, where do you want to be? You want to be where the temple is because that's where God is, right? God's just asked him to go one and one third mile away. But it's not like being away from the actual temple means that he's away from any blessings because as he stands he's, he's by the banks of the river, he looks out and on either side, there's all of these trees. The text doesn't just say that there was a couple trees. It says that there were very many trees in a desert area. In California, one of the things that I've, I've come to see is that we don't have a lot of trees. Uh, in fact, if you look at, if you just look up like pictures of the wilderness where the Israelites wandered, and then you look up a picture of San Diego, it looks like the same, it's the same thing. Like if suddenly we had very many trees, that would be very, very shocking to me. But as Ezekiel is continuing to look at this, you notice in verse eight that this river goes where? It goes to the sea. Now, did you notice in verse 8 that it doesn't even specify what sea it is? What sea would have been so famous and so well-known in this area that all you have to say is the sea, and you know which one it is? It's the Dead Sea. Um, do you suppose the Dead Sea... But by the way, the, the Dead Sea is the lowest point below sea level on Earth. I've, I've read and what I understand about the ocean is that the ocean is made up of 3.5% salt and minerals. I don't know if that's right. I think that's right. The, the Dead Sea is 35%, like minerals and salt and stuff like that. You can't even like sink in that thing if you wanted to. And so can you imagine if you ever like walked by the Dead Sea and somebody said, hey, one day that place is going to be teeming with life. And you see all those dead fish bones all over the place and everything like that. Like one day there's going to be real live fish there. And you'd think you're crazy, dude. That's never going to happen to this place. Like the Jordan River has been trying to feed into that thing for thousands of years. And the Jordan River's never given it life. Nothing's going to give that thing life. But as Ezekiel is looking at all of this in verse nine, not only is there very many trees in verse nine, there's very many fish. So now like this whole fishing operation has gotten pretty popular around here. We're from from shore to shore and Getty to Enelglame or however you pronounce that one in verse 10. There's fishermen all over the place. 
Um, in California, we've got this thing called the Salton Sea. I don't know if you guys ever visited that place. But the Salton Sea is California's version of the Dead Sea. It used to be a sea in the, 19, in the 1950s, 40s, 50s, 60s that people would fish at. And then apparently a train filled with salt crashed into it. I don't know if that's legend or not, but that's not the only way that it got its salt. Like apparently all the farmers, like all the runoff from the chemicals that they used went into it. And now it's completely dead. And apparently, like, if you look up, like, pictures back in the day, like, it was a place to be. And now it's completely dead. The, the reverse thing is happening here. But notice in verse 11, there are still swamps and marshes that are left for salt in verse 11. Now, we're going to come back to this at the end, but why is there still swamps and marshes in this text? Maybe one answer to this is because in the context, it's dealing with the temple. And the temple, they would need salt for the sacrifices. So maybe it's left there for the sacrifices. But there's another reason to that that I want to come back to. And as Ezekiel is scanning everything, he also notices in verse 12 that there's not just trees, but there's fruit trees. Like all of these trees producing fruit for all of these people around that are doing the fishing or whatever, things like that. All right, there's this beautiful picture. What in the world do we do with that? Isn't that cool? What is this talking about? I'm going to suggest that this, first of all, is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Go over to John chapter 2. You can open your Bibles to the Gospel of John because all the other passages that we're going to look at will be in the Gospel of John. But look at John chapter 2. And uh, while you're turning there, I'll just maybe point out this. That two times in Ezekiel 47, at the beginning of the text and at the end of the text, we learn that the flow of water, the source of the flow of water, the little trickle, was coming from the sanctuary of God. That's where God dwells, is in the sanctuary. In the New Testament, Jesus says that he's the temple. Go, look at John chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture uh, and the word that Jesus had spoken. When Ezekiel was looking at this little trickle that became this great mighty river, the source of the blessings came from the sanctuary. Jesus picks up this mantle and says, the source of blessings are going to come from me. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament letters how they begin? Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, do you know anybody in the world that doesn't want grace and peace? Like, I really want grace and peace. The problem is that we look for it in the wrong places. We don't look for it in God and in Jesus. We look for it in relationships. We look for it in money. We look for it in status, we look for it in having a nice house. Like we look for it in all these other things that aren't, again, inherently wrong. But this is showing us that the, the source of blessings comes from the sanctuary of God. If you want to experience life like this river gave, the only place that you're going to go for it to actually get real life is going to be from Jesus. But think about the direction of the flow. So we, the source of the flow, it comes from the sanctuary, from Jesus. But think about the direction. It goes towards things that are dead. Uh, the, the, this river went to the Dead Sea. Does that ever 
like, th- does that kind of encapsulate Jesus's, like, what he did during his earthly ministry? What kind of people did he go to? People who were dead, right? Like, so, for example, in um, John chapter 4, you have Jesus with the woman at the well. Now, if you would have met that woman at the well in Samaria, you would have looked at her and said, by society's standards, you're a terrible person. And Jesus talks about giving her living water, right? But do you remember what he does in the chapter right before that with Nicodemus? This guy that by society's standards has got it all together. He looks good, like from the externals, he knows the law. He, he looks like he's got everything put together. And then Jesus says even to him, using water imagery, you must be born of water and spirit. Have you ever, the, the story of the prodigal son, have you ever, like the way that we typically talk about this is the story of the prodigal son singular. That's really the story of the prodigal sons plural because both of the sons were arrogant and had all kinds of issues. And that's one of the messages of that parable. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus went to all kinds of people. And the reason for that is because all kinds of people are dead spiritually. They don't have life. I don't care how bad you are by society standards. I don't care how good you are by society standards. If you've made anything other than God, your God, you're dead. You're the dead sea. Um, and Jesus would go to people like that. Now, the kind of people that he would go to, do you suppose that these people tried to like get life from other streams? So for example, uh, the woman at the well, she was trying to get life from relationships. That was the stream that she thought would give her life. Nicodemus, with his religious kind of status and things like that, he was trying to get life from those kinds of... Have you ever been the person or met the person who kept trying to get life from a stream that wasn't giving them life? Uh, that's a picture of what all of us do. But then the Bible teaches that Jesus in Romans 5 verse 5 God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That the true life that we're all really looking for is ultimately going to be found in Jesus. But think about the manner of the flow. It starts small and then gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Jesus, by worldly standards, never wrote a book. He didn't have official kind of like education he picks 12 guys that by society standards are a bunch of losers. And he changes the world through those losers. If you would have, like, if you lived in the Roman time period and the Jewish time period, and you, like, see Jesus with his little band of people, and then you go, like, look over at the Roman soldiers and, like, the cult emperor worship, and you were to predict, okay, in 2,000 years, who's going to be more worshipped? Is it going to be the Roman Empire, or is it going to be that guy over there? You, nobody would have said Jesus. So he started out small, but 2,000 years later, here we are in Atlanta. There's Christians all over the world who are worshiping him because this small stream became big. But to try to think about that in a more personal way. When you first started thinking about the Lord, did it start out with a small kind of desire? And the more you started like praying and reading your Bible, the more and more that kind of desire grew. And the more and more you started to experience the life that he has to give. This is, first of all, a picture of what Jesus was going to do um, in the way that he was going to do his, his work. But this is also a picture of the Christian, I would suggest. Look at John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. I will read through verse 39, actually. 
On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Um, this is the Feast of Booths, and what, what, what I've read about this feast is that the Jews knew all of these passages in the Old Testament that talked about like this outpouring of water that was going to bring forth blessings and things like that. And so on the Feast of Booths, on the last day of the feast, the Jewish leaders would go down to the Kindred Valley and take up buckets of water and then pour it in the temple complex as a way of symbolically anticipating these blessings that was going to happen. So in verse 37... On the last day of the feast, the last day when they would be pouring out buckets, Jesus says, I am the source for anybody who wants to have life. But if you believe in me, as the scripture says, out of your own heart is going to flow rivers of living water. What's the picture? Jesus is saying, first of all, in John 2, I am the temple from, from whom all blessings flow. But my followers are going to become like many temples. And from those many temples, from their very hearts, will flow these same blessings that they've first been blessed with. What's your mission? Your mission is to be a healing stream. Your mission is to be a river of, uh, of life in the desert. But that, try to think about the direction of the flow. Like, so if, if Jesus flowed from thing, to things that were dead... What's the mission of the Christian? Your direction that you're supposed to flow to are towards people who are dead. You know what sometimes Christians like to do? Let's hang out with Christians all the time. We need to hang out with each other. We need to spend time with each other. But uh, you guys have heard the whole imagery before that salt isn't supposed to be left into its shaker, that otherwise it's not living out its purpose. Christians are supposed to flow towards things that are dead so that they can go help those kinds of people. Um, you think about the book of Acts. And it's not just like paid preachers who are doing that. In the book of Acts, you've got all kinds of Christians flowing towards things that are dead, people that are dead. And as they do that, they were living like streams of water in a dry place. In California, I'm sorry, I keep bringing up California. It's just the imagery is so similar. But there's a city called Calexico. And it's kind of funny because it's on the California side, but it's on the border of Mexico. The first city on the other side of the border is Mexicali. It's on the Mexican side, but it's right next to California. So that's not confusing. So the, the, one of the members at the church has got his own little private plane, and he does a lot of work in Calexico. And so he asked me if I wanted to fly his little plane with him, and I did. And so like it was all like, it was like a 40-minute flight, and it was all like desert, 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 and then suddenly a bunch of green vegetation. And I asked the guy when he was flying it, I said, why is it suddenly like a bunch of farms? Like, it's all been dead up to this point. He said, well, the Colorado River was diverted around the turn of the 19th century or 20th century or whatever. And so because the Colorado River was diverted, it brings life to this place that would otherwise be completely dead. Uh, that's our mission. You are the Nile in Egypt. You are the Colorado River in Calexico in your workplace. There's people that are spiritually dead. They might look like Nicodemus. They might look like they've got it together. Spiritually speaking, they're dead if they don't have the Lord. Um, try to think about the manner of the flow, though. So if, if Jesus started out small, kind of like the mustard seed and got big, uh, the manner of the flow. 
have you ever noticed how Bible studies oftentimes begin with just a few people and then they grow a lot sometimes? Have you ever noticed how like you start with something that's small and seems insignificant and then you don't know where that's going to go and it ends up becoming things sometimes that you never thought that it was going to become. You want to be somebody who can be a blessing to people around you. Sometimes we might be tempted. Well, I just want to start doing it right now. Well, you can't despise small things. Small things that might seem insignificant, like studying your Bible every day and praying every day. And uh, the more that you do these things that might seem trite or boring, I'm not saying that they are, but we might feel that way about them. The more you do that, the cumulative work eventually makes you into this mighty rushing river that can bless other people. Try to think about a small invitation to a Bible study. Would you ever suspect that a small invitation could lead to somebody's soul being saved? Don't despise small things because you don't know what they might become. When I, when I first became a Christian, um, I was meeting with the preacher every week who baptized me. And after about six months of studying with him, he said, have you ever thought about preaching? And I shook my head and I said, that's pretty dumb. Like, let's talk about something else. Like, I just want to learn the stuff about the Bible that I wanted to learn today. Like, I don't want to do that. And then like that little comment that he made um, caused me to then work with a little church in Minnesota while I was getting my degree. And then I ended up training in Nashville. And now I'm in California and I never thought I'd live in California. That little comment. Is there some little encouragement you could give to somebody? That may, you might even be thinking in your mind like, oh, there's no point in really even saying this because it's such a small thing. You don't know where that could lead. Don't despise the day of small things. Zechariah talks about that idea because you don't know what they can become. Uh, this imagery in Ezekiel 47, remember it, had, it still had the, the swampy marshes that had the salt. Maybe the swampy marsh for the salt was for the sacrifices. But do you know what I think it means in the context? There's some people that still want to stay a swampy marsh with salt. There's some people, even though they've heard about this healing stream, even though they've been invited to become part of that, they they just want to be like a stick in the mud. And they don't want to give up everything that God asks them to give up to gain something that's far better than anything else they could have ever had. Uh, Are you being that person? Are you being that swamp? When you're right next to this river, it's within reach. That could give you all kinds of life that you never thought you could have. I thank you guys for your attention today. And uh, again, tomorrow we're